Welcome to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode of Inside the Rope, I'll be speaking with Tiffany Jones from Momentum Advisory Group. Tiffany runs an advisory business and provides a service to wealthy families and individuals managing succession planning, intergenerational wealth management and family leadership. With experience spanning J.B. Weir and Goldman Sachs, Tiffany's displayed time and time again a great knack of being able to manage clients through this process and develop outcomes which are of great value. I hope you enjoy. Hi Tiff, welcome to Inside the Rope. Um, I'd like to start with Maybe if you could give us a bit of a background as to family leadership, what it means, what it is, and why people should be thinking about it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. Uh, I think this topic became of interest to me probably five or six years ago. Most of my work has been with leaders, CEOs, executives uh, of companies, small, medium, large, many of whom were family businesses. And we found as we got into the discussion about succession and next generation and future planning and strategy and purpose that often the discussion kept coming back to, well, what are the values of the company or what are the individual's values and how do we come together with a single purpose? And more often than not, it was about the culture and about the family values that many of these companies held dear. And it struck me that there was more to the conversation than how do we keep the company's legacy going forward, but how do we help families continue their legacy? And it's been a real passion project, I guess, of mine in trying to research and understand more about this space. And I think it's a developing area. I think, in my view, it's similar to philanthropy a decade ago, when it wasn't talked about openly. It was a private affair. It was something that one might have assumed would be done in closed doors. And we're finding that, as with philanthropy, more and more families want to talk about the challenges they're facing, thinking about the next generation, how they tell their family story, sure. and do that in a way that really sets up the next generation to do something meaningful with those families' resources. And, and your background, where ha- for how long have you been doing this for and where have you and yeah. what, what that sort of experience been? Yeah, look, over 20 years or so, I'd say I've been working really with education as the focal point in the banking sector and related sectors, so clients of that sector. And about six or so years ago, went out to work specifically with those businesses in an independent capacity away from banking because I wanted to explore more of the relationships and what was happening within those family structures uh, without there being any conflict of interest that we were trying to manage the money of the family, but actually look at how those families were structured, organized, so that they were still here multiple generations on. So I was, I gotta admit, a little bit of a skeptic and we've worked on a few clients um, in some early stages. And I've gotta say over the last two years, I've really come around to the power of this. And typically, you know, I, I guess I saw, well, this is a real first world problem. Um, you know, intergenerational wealth, family leadership, um, you know, people really just want returns on their money. Um, but the, the more I sort of dug into it, the more I started talking to clients, particularly wealthy clients, who by some measures would say are successful, 
and by other measures, and that comes back to how you measure success. Um, you know, one of the interesting things I've been a big you know, fan of is sort of laying out with clients all of their, 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 their whole sort of financial life and, and then sort of getting to a point where you're saying, well, what's the point of this? And, and trying to get them into this sort of Maslow-like thinking of, well, what's the purpose of all these funds? What's the purpose of what they're doing? So I, I guess I've come around really in the last two years um, and also seen, you know, just because people have created wealth doesn't necessarily make them happy. In many cases, it's actually inversely related in that the complication, the stress, the, the children, you know, um, the tension it creates, the different marriages, etc., um, they can actually be less happy, which is very counterintuitive to a lot of people. Is, is that your experience that you're seeing? or? Yeah, it's a really great point. I think a couple things come to mind. This notion of wealth is, I think, being tested by probably thanks to our millennials, but certainly the newer generations coming through. And that's our kind of fundamental question is what does it mean to be wealthy? Redefining what wealthy means. And more often than not, when you ask someone to say, write their epitaph or casket speech, um, they talk about the relationships, the people in their life who they impacted, influenced, were influenced by. And it doesn't come down to the financial wealth, but the ability to do something with the resources that they have. And I think the first point of call for us is trying to get clear with the family about what is that family's collective purpose and what it means for them to be wealthy. And it's everything from financial, but more often the human, the intellectual, the social, the spiritual side of what we could consider to be capital that a family has in its uh, possession over many generations. And getting in touch with that and understanding how that's been passed on and how they can continue to build on that, enjoy it, but pass it on again to future generations. And the classic adage, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, which many people write about now. Some of the great writers... Sorry, was that short sleeves? Shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, which is the first generation comes from nothing, the second yes. builds it, and the third rides somewhat on its coattails and tends to blow it all and end up back in shirt sleeves again. Okay, sure. So it's a really kind of interesting philosophy around really appreciating what a family stands for. What's their story? What matters to them? And often those resources, if you take that adage in that second generation, they're still working towards something because they've seen the first generation build it. But often by that third generation, there's a distance, there's a gap. And some would think, oh, that's a first world problem, right? Mm -hmm. They've inherited wealth, poor them. The reality is for many families, it's a burden as opposed to a gift. And that's the real question for me to try to get to, which is how can we make this wonderful resource for many families who've accumulated quite a bit of wealth, particularly over the last decade, particularly in Australia, see that as a resource that they can both benefit from but continue to pass on. Sure. And that's the part for me with kind of leadership underscoring all of this that is important that we help that next generation do something meaningful with that gift. And this is a bit of a new uh, area in Australia because unlike Europe where you've had families and dynasties and long generations of wealth, and even the U.S., where you have you know the Carnegies, the Mellons, the Rockefellers, you know, there's a long history there in Australia, from a material sense anyway, um, and from a, a Western, you know, we're really into the 
second, third, fourth generation maybe of wealth. So it's not so uh, normal or widespread in this country. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. A um, couple of things I've learned about, and obviously my accent gives me away, I'm not Australian. Well, you I... gave it away. I was a bit... <laughs> Earlier on, you said, "Well, thank you, David." And and Tiff, you normally refer to me as Clarky, so I, I was, you know, this this Clarky. Um, I was a bit disappointed I didn't get that at the start. It's the the American formalities in me. Um, look, ten years on plus in this country, I've done some homework, um, and we were testing this idea of a legacy. And these legacies are so profound, as you say, the Rockefellers, and you look around the Asian dynasties, and there's the European families that go way back, mostly, um, in stories that are both wonderful to hear and sad at times, um, in terms of the way they resulted. Australians really challenged me on this idea of legacy. Uh, the elder generation said, I don't care if my name is attached to something. Mm -hmm. I just want my kids to have a good life. Want them to be fulfilled. I just wanted to be happy. Want them to be happy. And even happy was something I questioned. They said, look, life isn't all happiness, but I want them to feel fulfilled, that they had some kind of purpose um, that they were able to achieve. And that really drew me in. And they said, forget about legacy. Help that next generation do something meaningful for themselves with whatever it is that I gave my life's work to. And then equip them with whatever skills they need to do that again for the next generation. So the question I tend to ask first is, do you think forward to future generations? Is this about future resources that you can actually create, not just how do we live it and spend it and enjoy it now? Some element of that matters. That to me is a critical part of the work that we do is really taking a much longer term view. And that's tricky, back to your point about being a little bit skeptical at first, because most of the financial sector is looking for short term returns, performance. That's the way they're measured. I know this coming from banking myself. So trying to shift that mindset that when it comes to families and their resources, it's a long game. And there's no perfect time to start the conversation, but often we tend to find that we get into it because of a life event or a liquidity event that creates a crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, my preference is to see families take that journey and start it when there is no crisis at hand. So the life event, liquidity event you're talking about there, that's sort of uh, somebody gets ill in the family. Marriages, um, births, death, divorce. Yep. A business, things, family business is sold. Those are your liquidity um, events, so moving yep. the family business on. Uh, interestingly, back to the question about Australia, these first, second generation businesses that have come up, um, the idea is not to try to perpetuate the family's business. I think we've moved on from that, is to help perpetuate the family's resources, financial, human, intellectual. So they've often sold the business. These days with the newer generation, they'll probably build and sell a business multiple times in their lifetime. So it's less so about the working capital being a physical capital and more about how the family comes together to look across all of its resources and put them to the greatest use mm -hmm. possible. So can you talk to me a little bit about where you see this being done well and an example of that and maybe counter that with you know, an outcome where you think it's not done so well and you'd argue that you know, the family or the people have suffered because of that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so there's a good book that came out a few years back by Jay Hughes called Cycle of the Gift. Mm -hmm. And I go to this often as almost a first matter of course for any family going down this path. We spend so much time focused on the uh, 
benefactors, the individual whose yep. gift they are looking to give. So this is the estate planning Correct. a lot of people start. The elder says, I want to put things the in will. a safe place. Maybe it's a will, maybe it's some kind of a fund, maybe it's an investment portfolio, maybe it's locked up in property, et cetera, et cetera. I want to protect the asset. I want to put it somewhere yep. safe for the future generation. And then at some point in time, I will bestow upon them this gift. And in traditional sense, the will would say either at 18, you're a man or a woman, or you've grown to adulthood, mm -hmm. or maybe at 25 or 30 it's or 35. It's getting older and older. These odd, it's 30, definitely 35. getting older. These odd, very arbitrary dates. Well, they're, like, they're like contracts, I find, in that you know they're filled every time somebody sees a bad experience, whether it be someone or an advisor in the process, they've said, I've come across this process where you know there's a spendthrift son or a son-in-law, so we'll add this clause in, and they just kept building and building yep. you know, like a pile of... They do. They do. They create this uh, contract that continues to go on and on, and I'll come to that in a moment, but those contracts more often than not get contested after their death. But part of the challenge is they write these contracts as if they're uh, a fait accompli. And in very few cases, surprisingly, where the wealth has amassed, do they even talk about those agreements or um, those wishes with the family members? There's uh, great stories, to your question, about where families have talked about their intent and their hopes and their values early on, share what they would like to have happen with their life's work and resources after their death, and engage the family in that conversation early. Even greater examples are where they bring that timeline forward. And I'd say this is moving us from a mindset of ownership, which is I own this asset and I give it to you upon my death, to stewardship, which is I involve you in that process while I'm well and truly still alive and enjoy watching what you, the next generation in the most cases, would do with that resource in my lifetime and start to create that conversation much earlier. Where I see it go uh, less well is um, when the conversation hasn't occurred. The first time a family member, say, finds out about the gift that is being passed on is upon that person's death being shared with them usually by a lawyer or some executor of the state, of the estate, and it creates this huge shockwave. Um, more often than not because the individual's identity and purpose and expectations about what their life held is now thrown into kind of an upheaval. Um, for some family members, equal is not fair. Most families struggle with this. So you'll start to find that the beneficiaries of those gifts start to have disagreements about what they felt they may have been entitled to, and this wonderful word of entitlement creeps in. So how do we combat entitlement is probably one of the biggest issues where I think either families do it well or they do it less well because they just avoid it. The more money families have, the less they tend to want to talk about it. That's the rule of thumb I find that we're trying to debunk. The one term I hear you use a lot, which I love, is trying to get families back around the kitchen table and talking about that. And it's interesting you just say there's, you find families with more wealth want to talk about it less. Um, and, and, and I must say, I, have, I see a little bit of a disturbing trend, and I've, I'm thinking of a client at the moment that over the last couple of years we've really been strongly encouraging to address this issue because, you know, second marriage, um, three children, to the first marriage, all adults in the business, large business, um, second marriage to younger, um, you know, children to that marriage and, and, and the wife of the second marriage is in the business. Significant wealth um, and, and not even a will or an estate plan in place, yeah. let alone, you know, what would some of the tools be 
in your framework in terms of that they would step through or, you know, in a practical sense of trying to address and ensure that what they're not going to leave is just a mess and an argument. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the first thing that came to mind is a really simple and easy chart you'll find in Malcolm Gladwell's book about David and Goliath. And uh, it's one of the, again, readings that I go to with families very early on, which is an advantage can be a disadvantage. That's what we're dealing with. So this goes to the adage of the more wealth you have, is it an advantage or is it a disadvantage? And this chart essentially shows that the less wealth you have, you talk about it all the time. Yeah. Because you see your life is somewhat impaired and maybe there are more challenges ahead for you, so you've got to work harder at it. Then yeah, there's but, but a you, you understand what a meal costs. You understand how to manage money. You understand how to save. You understand you develop grit. You develop all these things. You Whereas do. if you grow up in an environment without that, you, know, you just don't acquire those skills. You don't. You don't potentially because you're shielded from it, uh, because uh, it's hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, there is a tipping point on that curve when uh, the research shows that a family can be satisfied with enough wealth to live a meaningful life, understand the values of money, good hard work, um, and, and just happiness in life. And then it tips down again. It's an inverted U. The more money that you tend to have because it becomes harder to put a real-world value on it mm -hmm. and to say no. Families struggle when there's wealth there to have a meaning or reason behind saying no. If you have no money, you can say no quite easily. We don't have it. If you have the money, you have to say no because that is not in line with our values, our choices. So a real challenge I see is having helping families to take those kitchen table conversations that you have naturally as you're growing up and move those into a space where you're young adults and adults in that next generation and treating them as equals and talking about what is it that we want to achieve as a family, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a tougher thing to do because you might often find an, an elder in the family if you ask what really matters to them. They can articulate that. But if you ask if they've done that in a meaningful way with those whole family members, spouses, as we joke, the outlaws, right, the broader the family reaches, the cousin generation, it's not talked about. The communication is one of the first things that starts to fall and, and fail. So you ask what tools we use. I think, for me, the cornerstone of this work is around education and communication, getting those core family members back together around the kitchen table, getting them talking about what we stand for, what matters to us. How do we want our children telling our family story? Really then looking at how does that therefore drive a collective purpose and a family strategy, if you will? What are the things that we think are important to do and spend time and invest in? And how do we go about that? So essentially having a plan. Um, we also talk about governance. And I'm a big believer that most families we hear about have a family office. They go and get external advice. Usually accountants will set up that family structure. They'll hire on employees who'll look after their investments and other administrative duties. The families that I'm coming into contact with today, they've amassed quite a bit of wealth. I mean, in Australia, if you own a home, you're already a millionaire. So it really throws out the notion of wealth and wealthy. They want to be organized like a family in that family office environment, but they don't necessarily want all the bureaucracy and administration that goes with it. So what we're finding is a little bit like Uber. You once, if you were really wealthy, could have a chauffeur on call. Well, now anyone can have a chauffeur on call. And I'd like to think for families where they feel they've amassed enough resource that they can organize themselves like a family office. And that debunks the notion of being the ultra elite wealth uh, to those who have access to wealth and want to have the same kinds of conversation and governance. Governance 
a simple guidebook about what we stand for that helps guide future generations. A uh, simple family council meeting where they come together periodically and have a set agenda and have it chaired and bring in people like yourself, people who have specialist skills and advice that they can share that have some alignment to their family strategy. Um, and other things that go into what I call governance. The most fun part of that is probably the family assembly, which often happens once a year, and it's inclusive of the whole of the family with all of the various extensions of a family, and most of it's about staying connected socially and keeping those relationships alive, but there is a small portion of it which is about sharing what that family's been doing each year and talking about that and sharing their learnings and their failures and the wisdom from the family for generations to come. I have a vision of what this looks like and what these events look like. Is it like Christmas Day at our house where you know, everything starts off and the kids are running around and then you know, you, you know the ones who are going to be asleep on the couch in the late afternoon and and the chatter that goes on, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things, Tiff, I've been impressed with is people in your situation and being able to f facilitate this type of process. And, and it didn't really occur to me at the start, which is often you have a matriarch or a patriarch uh, who's in control of this wealth, and they think, no, this is all under control. I've had conversations with each of these people, these three or four children or the wider, and, and what they're missing is that it's not it's not a two-way street in that conversation because they're talking from a position of power so they're not really getting the full you know they're not getting a full symmetrical sort of dialogue back to them and and often when you come in and start these conversations you're able to almost broker some information to say well actually I know this is what you feel the family is saying and what they're feeling but actually there's a bit of a feeling over here that this, this, this son in the business or this daughter in the business, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see that often? Is that, yeah, it's how a, does that dynamic It's work? a great point. It's about giving everyone a voice. So the earlier uh, reference I made to sort of the beneficiary versus the benefactor, right? So the gift sure. giver and the gift recipient. Um, it's shifting the focus to the recipient of the gift because really if they're not prepared to receive, they will most likely either find it's a burden or do something that ends up possibly having a negative consequence or a negative outcome with what was intended to be a very positive gift because they can't attach any meaning or understanding or purpose around it. So the goal for us is to get people at the table and their voices heard and to allow particularly those who are less often in command of those conversations because typically wealth is amassed by usually some primary breadwinner, male or female, but the father or the mother, who have been very successful in whatever they've done. So naturally they have a bit more of a leadership CEO mindset. That doesn't tend to translate well at the kitchen table, right? If you think about your own experience with your kids, they want to learn from you for a while and then after a while... Oh, I get response. My chief domestic officer at home <laughs> constantly tells me, uh, we don't work with you or for you, David. That's right. That's exactly right. So I tend to find to the point around facilitation that at some point the parents recognize that they need to be at the table, not leading at the table. And they need to put that ownership in the hands of that next generation. So for me, the goal is really creating, if you ask me who the real client is, it's that next generation. It's not, say, the uh, wealth creator, because the intention is to put the focus, the skills, the capability, and activate the potential of that next generation to do something meaningful with that family's resource and mm. to be able to create that cycle which is essentially the gift that keeps giving. So Tiff, can you give me a bit of a uh, picture of what it looks like 
in a successful outcome in your view of sort of someone going through this process? What, what are some of the key outcomes in, say, five or years or so time? What does it look like? Yeah, look, it's interesting you picked that time frame up. Most families want to know what can we expect either year on year, what's an outcome? And I said, remember, families aren't businesses, so it's a long game. My involvement with a family would traditionally be, I'd say, three to five years because families don't come together as frequently as businesses would. So you might get them together once every couple of months. And then there's a lot of work you're doing behind the scenes with the individuals. My goal in that time frame is to help the family have a pretty solid foundation with a very clear sense of purpose around the family, how they come together, what their guidelines or uh, simple rule book is for the way that they work. Often we call that a family charter, so that it's there and it's evolving over the generations for future generations to use and reference. They have a regular flow of communication between them, so there's a sense of real conversation that's now happening, often in those council meetings, but we've broken down the need for just those meetings because members of the family who may have at some point stopped having that free flow of conversation or being... Uh, comfortable, safe to challenge each other or disagree, which is hard harder to do in a family uh, because we've got these sort of preconceived notions of who we are when we were younger adults to who we are today. And in that period, they're achieving something. They feel that they've started to really do something together and it has a whole realm of things that they may touch, whether it's around investments or property or education or philanthropy um, or just self-development. There's a real sense that the individual is getting something from that experience and that the family is getting something from that experience. And for me, you just know when it's humming along because things are starting to happen without it having to feel as contrived. My job then is to make myself redundant because I want that family to be self-governing. I believe families shouldn't rely on an outside party to help guide them through those important conversations, but my job is to give them the skills, confidence, to do that and to steward that family's resources into the future. So, so you're providing the framework really and the tools to let them govern themselves going forward. That's right. And I think you have to ask them if they feel that that's working for them now. That means that they probably have a good set of advisors that they have now learned to draw upon. One of the important things for me when I was at Goldman Sachs was observing in the families that I worked with that only one of the family members made most of those choices. I want mm -hmm. the whole family to feel comfortable knowing how to seek good advice and to bring that advisor on board at the right time and to make sure that there's a really positive outcome from that and that the family learns through that experience. So I tend to find it's not as formal as a board, but it's almost like a kind of council of advisors that the family has now learned to draw upon to achieve the things they've set out in their strategy. And they got confidence to ask good questions and to take a role and be involved and active in whatever aspect of that family strategy they would like to. And to be able to have disagreement and conflict and come back from that and still be able to achieve things as a family together. For me, that is probably about a three to five year window for most families, unless we're dealing with a family that's got some serious challenges behind it that we some need to Some dislocations. Some dislocations is a nice way sure. to put it. What, what, what sort of proportion of families in that high net wealth space do you think this is appropriate for? Yeah, good question. I don't think there's a specific number because it comes down to whether a family feels it has something of wealth, of resource to pass on. I think realistically, if you're a family of a few million dollars of investable assets, that means we're not counting their superannuation or their family home. Sure. We're looking- So you get to live in Sydney. 
without having to think too much about money. That's correct. You can do roughly what you want. You can do roughly what you want, and you feel you've got something that you could give. Yeah. Um, which there's a spirit of giving something on, which these families tend to have in common. Um, I'd say they may benefit from a short round of conversations where we set them up as a family, give them some of those basic structures and let them have a go at it. Families with uh, more complex issues, more life events, if you will, uh, and possible future liquidity events, I tend to find benefit from having someone stay with them through that journey for a bit longer. And so in that role, I tend to operate more as an independent chair or advisor to the family, mm -hmm. may join their board if it exists already, or simply act as that independent chair for that period of time so that they can get themselves organized. And then I'm checking in pretty regularly to see if they're ready to govern themselves and then step out of that process. Sure. But, but is there a valid you know, proportion where you think it just doesn't apply at all? They, they don't feel like they, they want to or don't need to give or want to you know, ensure an, a legacy? You know, is that a valid response, do you think? Yeah, it's a tough one. I think it's hard to say when should a family do it or not do it. But what I found in common with families who feel there's more to just putting their assets into a good solid investment vehicle, have a good tax advisor and let the rest play out and get their will in place. There's a sense of um, giving something charitable, something charitable, not in terms of pure philanthropy, but a, a spirit of giving something on to the next generation, more than just the financial wealth, but actually their life's experience, their uh, intellectual wealth and capital, um, their human capital that comes from uh, coming together as a family and working together collaboratively on something. I think a family has to have that spirit of giving and coming together for this to be useful for them. And if you had to put a dollar amount to it, I think they'd have to be able to look at what are they willing to let go of and let others make decisions around. And that is a really challenging thing for any family to do, particularly if you were the wealth creator. But that, to me, is probably one of the really um, critical criteria that a family needs to address if they want to go through this process. Thanks, Tiff. We've covered some ground there. Really appreciate your thoughts, as always. Thanks for joining us in Inside the Rope. Thanks. Thanks, Clarky. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.